We've come to Joshua chapter 3. After the account of the spies in Jericho and Rahab's confession of Yahweh as the living God, we return to the interrupted narrative uh, to Israel's crossing of the Jordan River for which preparations were being made in chapter 1. Along with the crossing of the Red Sea at the time of the exodus from Egypt, the crossing of the Jordan represents one of the pivotal events in Israel's history. Chapters 3 and 4 form a single unit, but as each is primarily concerned with different parts of the event, we'll take them separately. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. You may remember my telling you that each of the four main sections of the book of Joshua is characterized by a light vort, a leading word, a word that indicates the theme of that section. In the case of the first section, from the beginning of the book to verse 12 of chapter 5, that light vort is the Hebrew verb to cross or to pass over. It occurs here in verse 1 and eight more times in the chapter. The first section of the book narrates Israel's crossing of the Jordan into the Promised Land. This is an epoch-making event or moment in the history of Israel, as becomes clear by the attention that will be paid in the next chapter to the importance of Israel's remembering it. Israel had been encamped at Shittim some six miles from the Jordan since their triumph over the two kings, Sihon and Og, who had ruled the eastern bank of the Jordan until the Israelites arrived. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now, according to the inclusive way of reckoning time employed by the Hebrews, the three days would probably begin with the later part of that day uh, on which they arrived at the Jordan, the next day, and then the following day on which they actually crossed the river. The ark is going to be central to this episode, as is indicated by the fact that it is mentioned 17 times in chapters 3 and 4. The ark, as you know, was the embodiment of Yahweh's presence with his people. The space between the cherubim that stood above the gold box was regarded or considered as the invisible Yahweh's throne. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before, same verb there. Uh, 2,000 cubits is approximately 3,000 feet or more than half a mile. Clearly Israel was to follow the ark through the river, but there is a spiritual point being made as well. Israel is to follow the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecration would have required a variety of ritual observances, washings, abstaining from sex, from certain foods, and donning clean clothes on the following day. If you remember, a similar consecration was required of Israel 
at the foot of Mount Sinai just before the Lord descended to deliver his law uh, to his people. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on, again that same verb, before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now Joshua is not going to have any direct involvement in the miracle, but his leadership is going to be validated by what God will do for Israel when Joshua is her leader. And this is the point of verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. We still do not know what great sign the Lord is going to perform, only that one is coming. Now the Bible uses the term Canaanite sometimes to refer to all the people who lived in the promised land before Israel's invasion. But the term can also refer to a specific uh, tribe or group of people within the population of Palestine. We're going to hear about more than just these seven peoples. This is a representative list. <clears throat> Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. The addition of the words Lord of all the earth is a reminder that Yahweh is the living God, the true God, the creator of all that is and the maker of all of them, not the false, useless, and powerless God as was worshipped by, or gods as were worshipped by the Canaanite peoples who have just been named. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. Now there's been a lot of interest in this statement because it seems unconnected with anything else. The narrator doesn't tell us what these 12 men are going to do until later. So why mention that here? Perhaps to build suspense. We're wondering what they're going to do and why they have been singled out. And when the souls of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Avam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now, a point is made of the fact that when Israel crossed the Jordan, the river was in flood. The Jordan Valley between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea varies in width from 3 to 14 miles. And the floodplain of the river itself varies in width between 200 yards and 1 mile. But that floodplain 
is also packed with tangled bushes, which make the river much more difficult to cross, and that was the case long ago. The fords of the river were as much ways through the tangled undergrowth, bushes and so on, as ways of crossing the water itself. Even today, this is true, as Florence and I discovered, when on the highway north from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee, we saw a track off to the right, and we, tried, we thought we'd take it just to see if we could make our way down uh, to the river, and we got as far as the thick bushes, a little bit of water, but we never got close enough uh, to see the river. We would have had to troop through a lot of dense uh, foliage in order to get that far. The river channel, it is estimated, was from 90 to 100 feet in width and from 3 to 12 feet in depth. The current was relatively strong as the drop in elevation from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea computes to approximately nine feet per mile, which is actually quite steep. So the river Israel faced that spring was not the placid stream that you've seen in all of the pictures of the Jordan uh, that you have seen through the years. The water would have been deeper and wider and running faster than usual. Crossing it then would have been more difficult than at any other time of the year. Water standing in a heap is also how the parting of the Red Sea or the Yam Suf uh, is described in Exodus 15. Adam is probably a town some 16 miles north of the crossing opposite Jericho. There you find still today high banks of the Jordan that have been liable to periodic collapses sufficient to block the flow of the river for a time. In December of the year 1267, such a collapse stopped the flow of the waters of the river for 16 hours. In 1906, there was a similar event, and as the result of an earthquake in 1927, another one. In that last case, the river was dammed for a full 21 hours. Often, as we know, the miracles of the Bible were events caused by natural forces, but which were timed exactly to meet the requirements of the situation. Not all the miracles were that way, but a number of them were, and this one may have been as well. The Salt Sea and the Sea of Araba are ancient names for what we call the Dead Sea today. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. That men were standing for some time on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed um, confirms the reality of the miracle. Walking on dry ground is also the way in which the crossing of the Red Sea is described in Exodus 14. Our Father in heaven, we have here an event that has impressed itself on the mind of the church from that time until this. But like all such events, we are so familiar with it that we are wont often to fail to appreciate what has been revealed here and what we are being taught here. Lord, may we not forget, but remember what happened that day and take that truth to heart a thousand times. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, key to the narrative of Israel's crossing of the Jordan River is the presence of Yahweh represented by the Ark of the Covenant 
and the terrible power that he unleashed on his people's behalf. Without a doubt, the Canaanites knew by now that Israel was coming. They knew where Israel was encamped. Their scouts watched the army move to the river. Perhaps they amused themselves, wondering how Israel expected to throw its army across the Jordan when the river was in flood. But when they saw the water cease to flow from the north and the riverbed begin to appear, and then watched Israel begin to cross on dry land within hours, at most a day, the news would have been breathlessly reported to every ruler in Canaan that all hope of being able to resist this invasion was now lost. Imagine Rahab hearing the news in Jericho. It would have confirmed everything she already believed. Yahweh was the living God, and if it was his will that Israel occupy Canaan, there was nothing the Canaanites could do to prevent it from coming to pass. The point is that Yahweh has the power. The accent here in the chapter falls on the majesty of the Lord. Notice how it does. The ark is introduced, the powerful symbol of the divine presence in Israel, a magnificent gold box surmounted by two gold cherubim with wings outspread, and Yahweh invisible but present on his throne. It will be the ark as the presence of the Lord that will divide the waters of the river. Notice, too, how the ark is identified, especially in verse 11 and then again in verse 13. It is the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. That language suggests that God is the maker of all things, the ruler over everything that he has made, the one living and true God. All the so-called gods of the ancient Near East, and certainly the gods of Canaan, were in effect local deities attached to particular states and particular peoples, likely to be subject, in fact, to the gods of nearby nations stronger than theirs. When a people was conquered in battle, its gods would be carted off to be put in the temple of the gods of the conquering nations, as if the gods themselves had been beaten in battle. But there's none of this with Yahweh. Never a hint of it anywhere in the word of God. The Lord of all the earth, the living and true God, as Rahab had realized and as she had confessed, was not like in any way, shape, or form the imagined gods of the ancient world. Then the nation was required to keep a distance of more than half a mile between themselves and the ark. One does not approach the presence of the living God willy-nilly. The regulations of the tabernacle enforced that distance, that separation, one after another. You have to take great care when you are in the presence of God. You have to respect the distance that separates you from Him. That's why the nation was required to consecrate itself. They were to find themselves on the morrow in the presence of the Lord as he revealed his glory and majesty. They had to be pure. They had to ready themselves to be fit witnesses of that glory. And then finally, there is the fact that Israel was ordered to cross the river at precisely that time of year though in those conditions that made the crossing seemingly most difficult, if not impossible. Rivers, as you know, are notorious barriers for armies. No one can read the history of warfare in Europe 
for example, from the time of Caesar's conquest of Gaul to the Second World War, without realizing what a formidable barrier a river can be to the advance of an army. That's why so many bridges are destroyed in wartime. But some rivers are more difficult to cross than others, and the Jordan in spring flood was a, such a difficult river to cross. But Israel not only crossed it, she walked across it. She strolled across it on dry land. Divine power had been exercised on her behalf. A river had ceased to be a river in a moment, just for her sake. All of this is summed up in verse 10. In Joshua's exhortation to the people, which is clearly the climax of this chapter, here is your God, the living God among you. Now perhaps you're thinking, well, that's obvious, I know that. Hardly needs comment. But the fact is, the majesty of God has virtually disappeared from the consciousness of most Christians in the Western world. And frankly, you and I are struggling to maintain any real sense of it ourselves. It is one of the reasons why a sense of the divine majesty has literally disappeared from the civic religion of America today, that sort of vague sense of God that many nominal believers catch from the religious conversation and behavior of the real believers around them. If real Christians have lost a sense of the glory of God, nobody should expect it to be maintained by the nominal religious population. And it hasn't been. Many factors have contributed to this loss, of course, but several stand out in my mind. First, the great in engine of the consciousness of the divine majesty among God's people has always been the worship of God's house on the Lord's day. A sense of God's otherness, his distance from us, his being high above us, that he is beyond us, a deep mystery of life and existence, was conveyed through the Christian ages by many elements of that worship, by the architecture of the sanctuary, the kneeling and standing of the people, the music that was sung, the prayers that were offered, the confession of sin, the seriousness with which the word of God was preached and heard, the dress of the minister and the dress of the congregation. But over the past generation, and literally just over this past generation, virtually every means historically employed to keep that 2,000 cubit distance between Yahweh and ourselves has been systematically removed. Church buildings increasingly say little or nothing about the God who is worshipped there, and certainly nothing about His majesty. As Winston Churchill said of English architecture, during the Second World War, first we shape our buildings, and then they shape us. The informality of language and dress don't communicate reverence in any noticeable way. The music, now virtually universally sung in American Christian worship, doesn't convey the majesty of God. Preaching is much more informal, chatty, and humorous. All of this would be one thing, if while certain communications of the divine transcendence having been removed, others were added in their place. But the fact is, every change in Christian worship over the last generation has diminished 
rather than enhanced or increased the sense of the greatness and the fearfulness and the otherness and the power and the majesty of God. And no changes that have been introduced in Christian worship serve or have served to emphasize those things. All the changes have been in the same direction toward familiarity with God, not toward a conviction of the distance that separates him from us. Now, don't mistake me. God is near us. He is always near his people. He was in the ancient epoch. He is today near to those who call on him in truth. But at the same time, the Bible was emphatic that the God who drew near to his people, who loved them as their father, who carried them in his arms, was none other than the God who inhabited eternity and dwelled in unapproachable light. The God whom no man has seen or can see. The God whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity and who will by no means clear the guilty. The Bible is always careful to teach that God is both, not one or the other. And in fact, if we forget or if we minimize one dimension or the other of the divine life, his imminence or his transcendence, that which we hold on to is misshapen and corrupted as a result. Misunderstood, unappreciated. What makes God's tenderness toward his people so amazing, so thrilling, so wonderful, so life-changing is precisely that it is the Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the creator of heaven and earth, the immortal, invisible, omnipotent sovereign who is stooping down to love and to care for us. But the fact is, all of us find God's tenderness, his imminence, his nearness, his fatherly compassion, much easier to grasp and to contemplate, certainly less worrying than his majesty, his glory, his power. It's striking, really striking, how thoroughly, systematically, however unwittingly, the transcendent side of the divine life has been systematically removed in the public speech and conduct of the Christian church on the Lord's day. No wonder it is disappearing from the American Christian mind. But changes in worship are only part of the story. There is a broad, in Christian thinking, a deep and abiding prejudice against the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible. It is very widely thought. I come across this thought all the time, even in people who I'm whom I would have thought better of. Very widely thought that with the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, with his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, the Christian faith took on a more friendly face. There is, so it is thought, less of the threatening aspect of God, more of the friendly. Now that the new epoch has been established, they think that we are somehow or another closer to God than they were in Joshua's day. But it is not so. It's not only the case that the Old Testament is rich with the revelation of God's love 
and his tender affection for his people and his being near them to love and care for them. In fact, most of the great statements on that theme you will find in the first 39 books of the Bible, not the last 27. But there is as well in the New Testament so much of the revelation of his fearful majesty, his implacable opposition to sin, his readiness to judge and condemn and punish the impenitent. People somehow forget that when Ananias and Sapphira cheated on their tithe and lied about it, they were struck dead on the spot. They somehow failed to notice how much the prospect of God's unforgiving judgment featured in the preaching of the Lord Jesus, in the writing of the Apostle Paul and that of other authors of the New Testament books. How relentlessly worrying is the final book of the Bible, John's Revelation. The statement that our God is a consuming fire is made both in the Old Testament and the New. You hear it all the time. You do, I do. This person or that, we say, is angry at God because of some disappointment in his or her life. Now we should be, of course, deeply sympathetic toward people who have suffered and are disappointed or are despairing. We should care for them as those who have suffered ourselves and of those who know the one who suffered for us all. But let's face facts. Being angry with God is pure stupidity. What? Is the living God supposed to be wringing his hands because you're upset with him? Is he supposed to run to alter his plans for the world because you don't like what he has ordered in your particular case? Being afraid of God makes sense. The Canaanites easily understood the implications of Israel's crossing the Jordan at flood on dry land. Their situation was hopeless. Lots of them were going to die and they were going to lose their place in the land of their fathers. Being desperate to submit your life to God in faith and penitence, that too makes sense. If God is far, far too much for you, your only hope is to find peace with Him. No matter what that costs you. Rahab had figured that out. But being angry with God is utterly pointless. Do you think anybody turned around to shake his fist at the tsunami as it bore down upon him in Southeast Asia those years ago? And if he did, to what point? Or we hear that a good God wouldn't allow a tsunami or an earthquake or a fire to devastate the lives of people so. Really? How does anybody know that? The better question is, what sort of God is he who judges the world so severely, who tests mankind in so demanding ways, who refuses to allow human beings to find rest and a home in this world? The living God the God who has revealed himself in the Bible is a God of severe judgment, terrible power, implacable demand, relentless holiness. And this world reflects his will. There's judgment everywhere one looks. 
The outstanding feature of world history is the all-conquering monotony of it. The monotony of pride, foolish, utterly counterproductive, man living to his own detriment and the detriment of others. The pride, the futility in which he has always lived, lives today, will live to the end of the world. There is evidence everywhere of man's greatness, but still more evidence everywhere of his pettiness, of his failure, his inability to make a permanent home of this world, to find true fulfillment in his life, to overcome his own defects. God will not let him. Whenever he grows Confident, self-assured, there comes a tsunami, an earthquake, a fire, a war, a pestilence, a plague. To imagine that God is different today than he was that day Israel crossed the Jordan is to read a different Bible and observe a different world. And there's still another reason why the majesty of God is leaked out of the consciousness of the church of the Western world. That world has made its peace with indifference to the holiness of God. It has chosen in case after case to abandon the law of God and substitute standards of conduct that violate God's law in obvious and flagrant ways. It has made indifference to God's judgment the foundation of its approach to morality. There is no fear of God anywhere one looks in this Western culture. None. Where do you see it? And the loss of that historic vision of God as holy and as the defender of his own righteousness and as pure and one who loves what is pure and hates what is impure is now manifest in the church as well. The relentless pressure imposed upon the Christian mind by this culture and its pervasive media was bound to have an effect and it has had a profound one. It's had it on me, it has had it on you. Sin and grace, even for us, are now more often slogans than hard-edged realities. How can they be anything else when detached from the holiness of God? For it is that holiness that defines them and invests them with the terrible power that they have in the word of God and in true and authentic Christian living and worship. If sin is not an affront to God himself, if it is not an offense to the holiness of a God whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity, if it is simply self-destructive behavior, then grace will eventually be reduced to nothing more than another of today's hosts of self-help therapies. If worship is no longer the privileged audience of sinners with a God of impossibly great holiness and purity, then it will not be long before that worship changes its character in many ways. Not long before it has become, as it has already in so many instances, little more than entertainment. After all, if you do not need any longer to bow before God, confess your sins to Him in hopes that they might be forgiven, in fear that they might not, sing worship to Him and to His holy name, reverently attend to His word, what is worship going to become except a meeting designed to be useful to you? and to keep you coming back to church. If 
will not be long before it has been organized according to your tastes rather than the Almighty's. It is Israel's God, a God of impossible majesty, terrible holiness, unfathomable power that has largely disappeared from the American evangelical mind. And it is those things we are struggling to maintain in ours. But no wonder then that God no longer captivates the imagination of modern Western culture, that he is at most an afterthought, if he's a thought at all. A God without holiness, without that power, a God who does not command the fear of the world, is a God who is fundamentally uninteresting and unimportant. The human soul made in the image of the living God can only be satisfied by the living God, a God of impenetrable mystery, terrifying righteousness. That's the God who happens to exist. That's the God who has revealed himself to us from the beginning to the end of the history of redemption. And that's the God who is able to bring us into the promised land, no matter the obstacles that lie in our way. You do not, I do not, begin to grasp the majesty of God. We have our concept, our ideas about him. We use familiar words, but they are altogether too weak. They are insipid, really. As Augustine observed long ago, if you can grasp it, it isn't God. There is in the Bible's revelation of God a great stress on the antithesis that must always be respected the infinite distance that separates the creature from the creator, the impenetrable mystery, the infinite majesty that is fundamental to our Christian faith, our conception of God and everything else. To think of God as a lot like ourselves is in the Bible idolatry, which is a terrible sin. This is what Israel saw that day at the Jordan. The emphasis in the narrative is upon that fact. This is what the Canaanites saw from the other side of the river. The God who actually is, who could stop a river like that, send his people across it on dry land, and then put it back together again. Just like that. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But if that God is for us, as he was for Israel, who can stand against us? The world doesn't want God to be like that. We understand that. We get that. But Christians must never allow themselves to think that way. We must never wish that God were other than he is. It is his glory and ours as his people that he is so far beyond our finding him out. It is our highest privilege that it is this God, the Almighty, the Lord of hosts, who should have made himself known to pipsqueaks like ourselves. Think of Israel walking so far behind the ark, having taken care to purify themselves the day before. Think of what they saw as the priests carried the ark into the river. Think of them drawing near to the bank, stepping into the river, looking upstream, to see if they could see a wall of water bearing down on them. Think of the shiver that passed down their spine when they realized what had happened. Most of these people had not passed through the waters 
the divided waters of the Red Sea. This was a first for most of them. And think of this. The opening remark of the first sermon ever preached by Charles Spurgeon, then 18 years of age, and the new minister of the church in London that had called him to be their pastor. It has been said by some that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of God. It's a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. I don't think about God nearly as much as I ought. You don't either. Joshua 3 is a reminder that we ought to be thinking about God all the time and reminding ourselves what he is like, his majesty, his glory, his holiness, his terrible power, to think about God so that we might admire and love him more, so that we might fear him more, and so that we might trust him more. Amen.